Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega. And I'm so happy that today I am with Sands Hall. Sands, it's been a little while since we've seen each other, isn't it? Has it been? Has indeed, Tony. It has indeed. I think it was in New York City at my book launch or something. Yeah, at Amy Tan's house. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, Shindig, and uh, you performed music that night. I did. I did. Yes. One of my favorite things to do. <laughs> well, the, for those underground bunker readers that maybe uh, weren't around then, Sands Hall is a well-known writer and educator and musician who came out with a wonderful book about Scientology five years ago. Uh-huh. And right. And um, just deliciously written, very rich, okay. captured the internal journey that someone goes through with Scientology. Maybe, you know, I think you and Kate Bornstein maybe captured that mental journey better than anybody. Um and uh, and then I got to meet you at this at this party, and uh, I was surprised there you were playing music. But you know, you you come from a really interesting family, uh, and uh, why don't you fill in, folks, a little bit that maybe aren't that familiar weren't around in twenty eighteen when we were writing about all this? Well, um, let's see. I managed to extricate myself from Scientology in the early nineties, and. Um, and it took a long time actually to wrench all that away. But um, I didn't really start working on a memoir for a long time because I just kept thinking that all I had done was make an enormous mistake. I didn't think there was anything I had to say about it. And in fact, probably the biggest issue is that I spent a decade of my life pretending a decade of my life hadn't happened, which is not a very uh, productive way to live. And um, and uh, yes, I just... I do come from a really interesting family, and um, I, that's a big part of the memoir because I think it's really important, and I imagine underground bunker folk will agree that it's so many of us come to Scientology, if those of the bunker people that have been in there, there's never ends, I know, but um, we come with our own baggage, and I really thought it was very, very important to lay out what the wonderful and delightful and fabulous, though my family was and is, I felt it was very important to lay out the kind of culty, difficult things that I was actually both entrenched in and trying to escape and that Scientology, for which reason Scientology seemed very attractive. So I happened actually to be teaching uh, very fortunately at a wonderful college, Franklin and Marshall College back east. And amongst the classes I had to teach was, I got lucky enough to teach, was a uh, uh, a course called Introduction to Myth and Fairy Tale. Mm. And it was in the process of one of the reasons I very much wanted to teach that class was that I had stumbled, of course, as many of us have over the years on Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And I know Joseph Campbell's fallen into dis, you know, repute and he's a sexist and he's a Western person and he, you know, but there's a lot of fabulous things in his writings, of course. In fact, sometimes I think someone should do a parallel PhD comparing Campbell and Hubbard. It actually would be very, very intriguing because there are some similarities, including how they speak on their tapes, which is interesting. Anyway, one of the reasons I wanted to teach that myth and fairy tale course, Tony, was because I wanted to have the kids go. The hero's journey will be a way to solve when you're in the darkness forevermore in your life. If you can just remember that when you are in the underworld, there's a world to come back to. And this voice kept whispering, saying, maybe your trip through Scientology was like that. And it was like, no, no, it was just a mistake. It was a great big effing mistake. And I wish I hadn't done it. But this voice just keep whispering. And finally, I turned and paid attention to that. And that was when I began to really work on my memoir. And uh, you already had, had come from a literary family. Can you tell us a little bit about that for the people that aren't familiar with that? Yes. Well, my um, my father, uh, Oakley Hall, who died in 2008, um, was a pretty well-known writer amongst writers. Very. I just finished a wonderful mystery by a guy named John Harvey. And to my surprise and delight, he actually references one of my dad's books in that book. So he he was kind of in that world of the literary. People really admired him. And um, he was a beloved teacher. And 
Uh, so he was big shoes around. Um, and I did never think of myself as a writer. I actually pursued theater. My brother was also a writer and a playwright and started a theater back in New York, um, upstate New York, called the Lexington Conservatory Theater, which was a fabulous thing that we all just theater in a barn. So I just had these big sort of male figures around me who were writers, and I just didn't think of myself that way. And then little by little, I turned my direction that way. But um, it was great to have those legacies, in fact, to to live up to and to try to, you know, fit within and just find my own way. Well, and I think people are always interested to learn how does somebody who uh, grew up in an environment like that is obviously a very literate person, a very intelligent person. How do you fall? Oh, sorry, I forgot to set this up. How do, how do you fall into something like Scientology? Right. There are so many interesting little things. I've thought about this, of course, over the years. One is that my mother was raised Christian science. And although none of that pervaded our lives because my parents were probably, if they were anything, they were agnostic. Although I think my dad kind of retained his early Episcopalian stuff. He had great affection for great pieces of music like the Hallelujah Chorus. And that was that kind of stuff was often in the house. And they admired artwork that had to do with the Madonna or, you know, the Buddha. My mother collected all these East stuff and there were crucifixes in our and so there was a lot of mishmash of religious stuff in our house but that christian science was interesting because i remember specifically i i talk about this in my uh, memoir um when i didn't want to go to school one day and mom said well, what happened on the playground yesterday i mean she just went to it and it was very true that i was feeling sick but it was because of something that had happened and she got right down to the basis of it and said you know come out and eat your egg and go to school. And um, so that was interesting. The other thing that's fascinating was that my parents just derided psychiatry. They thought it was the, it was very much of their era, you know, the tool of the devil. So in a way, kind of as I crept towards Scientology, and I'll tell you how I came there, but um, it was like, I might get their approval. Right, because right. Scientology didn't like psychiatry either. Right. And um, and so there were these really bizarre reasons that, you know, but bottom line, my brother had, beloved brother had fallen off of a bridge uh, in the theater company in upstate New York. He basically lobotomized himself, was pr pronounced dead on arrival at uh, the hospital. It was a, a really big trauma. I mean, it took me a long time to understand what a huge trauma it was, in fact. And um, so I was in New York at that time, Tony, and within 18 months of that accident, I was walking into Milton Katselis's class oh, in that's right. Los Angeles. And, all, and then there were all these cool stars that were on the edges of Scientology and in Scientology. And then I started to work at three a $2 bills opposite Celebrity Center. And um, there was that crenellated, it's so classy now, but then it was kind of in disrepair, complete disrepair actually. But it was obviously very handsome building even then and very intriguing. And then in came uh, Mike Garson uh, trio and Shelby Flint was singing and Jamie Font was on the upright bass. Mm. And I basically, that was my first experience with jazz, really. I'd been a folk singer. You can tell by looking at me, the kind of music I had tended to play. It's jazzier now, but um, uh, I fell in love with jazz and I kind of fell in love with Jamie. And yeah. uh, he's the one that, that uh, hauled me along into the actual church itself. Right. And you do such a good job describing the technology, the courses, what it kind of does to you. Um, it's been some time now since uh, the book came out and we've been talking. I'm always curious, do you still find yourself dealing with those thoughts and ways of patterns of thinking that Scientology kind of 
uh, instilled in you many years ago? Really interesting, excellent question. One of the things I wanted to do was to draw the reader into being interested in Scientology the way that I had gotten interested in Scientology. Right. There were a lot of different people I wanted to reach. And amongst the, the many precious letters that I've received over time have been those saying, now I understand why my sister, now I understand why my right. cousin. Thank you very much. Because, And I loved that my editor, when she was assigned the book at CounterPoint, uh, said that to her husband, she told me this, that she didn't want to keep reading the book because Sands made Scientology sound way intriguing. And it was really worrisome to her. So those were all real compliments. Um, and the other thing I think that's interesting about that question is that when I first uh, sent the book off, long story, but to very briefly say it had a different title it yeah. was uh, first it was called pilgrimage and then eventually i got the flunk start and it was called report from a former scientologist this mm. is actually the first cover this is so funny actually this was the very first cover okay report from a yes. former scientologist okay scratched out flunk starts like that so um so then as we were maneuvering our way through various covers and thoughts my wonderful editor jennifer jennifer alton said you know sans i think it should be called reclaiming my decade lost in Scientology. And at first I was really resistant. I didn't like that idea of having, although the lost decade was totally a word I used, reclaiming se seemed odd. But in fact, it was the most perfect word because it allowed me to actually turn my gaze at that seven years of involvement and three years of pulling myself away and to say, well, what was in that decade? What was in those years? And those are the things I try to lay out in the book, particularly for me, word clearing. I loved the bloody dictionary. I went down word chains that were as long as Monopoly games. I mean, I loved word clearing and the whole idea of derivations and where words came from that to, to this day, that is just a fascination of mine. I mean, the other day we were talking about oncology and we sort of this friend of mine and I was like, you know, what is onco? Oh, it's tumor. You know, it's like those are really it's just great to have that grounding. I think the thing that has taken me a long time and I still stumble on it, but it's partly because it was of that early Christian science as well. Right. Mom, is that if the car gets scraped. I use the inactive form of that. If I scrape the car, if the car gets scraped, this happened to me, actually, someone keyed my car when I was in a rehearsal. Just, I don't know why, but that's an example. Stub my toe, uh, break the glass, something happens immediately. There is that, what did I do to pull it in? What mm. did I do to pull it in? And I think um, there's those of us in Scientology, I think, goes straight to the guilt. I think some people don't have that problem. It may be more familiar to women than to men to some degree, but there's that sense of what did I do? And that's probably been the hardest thing to pry out of my soul and just say, you know, um, as a friend of mine sent me a picture with a picture of her little kid uh, with a bib covered with carrots, mashed carrots and it said spit happens yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. sometimes spit happens and that was uh that's uh, to this day i think the most perhaps psychologically damaging thing the other thing even as i was researching the book and as you know tony i i researched because i made sure that every single piece of tech i quoted every single thing i said about hubbard was had a footnote at the end of the book because uh, I love footnotes. I think they're great, but I also wanted to cover my ASS. I just wanted to cover my ass. So um, that was what was really interesting was to see how Miscavige has changed the names of courses and changed the names of drills and changed the very, like the first thing we all study is keeping Scientology working. It's like nowhere in sight anymore. I just can't even believe the changes. And that was so fascinating to me to watch how the tech has been so, so altered. 
I was just explaining to a reporter today at a very major publication, by the way, that yeah. uh, they wanted to understand why people have left. And I explained that there's various reasons, but that one of the, the thing is that some of the reasons are hard to explain to people outside of Scientology because they're so arcane. So I found myself trying to explain to this reporter how Miscavige changed the definition of a floating needle. Yeah. And that this drove away thousands of people. They they yeah. couldn't believe that he was altering the tech and said, you know, now try to now can you imagine that that's the thing that has you leave this thing you bit? But so it's just some of the stuff is so arcane, and it's really hard to understand. But I, that's what I liked about your book is you really made us feel like we're experiencing it. You do express the appeal really well, and um, but then also. I, I liked, well, when you brought up keeping Scientology working, for example, you talked about how the first four or five rules are just sort of like, yeah, we're all together in this. We're going to do the right thing. But then after that, it gets kind of scary and uh, dystopian. And you keep signing off on it, course after course after course. I mean, you can see why to even define what the very first drill is in the training drills, right? O-T-T-R-0, you've got to understand what a thetan is, and then you've got to understand what operating means. You know, it's like you can see that you could stop right there if you didn't, you know, but many people didn't because the whole idea of an operating thetan was exactly what pulled them in, you know. Oh my God, that's the that's the shit I want, you know. Fascinating. But all that's changed, all that's renamed. I just am stunned by how many people support. And if, and it was very interesting to me to realize that I actually left not long after Hubbard died because yeah. the whole sense of what that which had been kind of, I don't know, fun. I had a great group of friends and we had a wonderful time. You know, I mean, I was always a little bit fretful about what I was signing off on and stuff, but we were all these ethical beings trying to be great people on the planet. And, you know, in my group, it was all artists trying to make our way. And we were supposed to be the best people in the world, according to, you know, their dreams are dreamed by artists, you know, is his big quote. So um, I began to realize that I got more and more scared and more and more nervous and more like, oh, I'm leaving when Miscavige came. Yeah. When we uh, when we were talking, I got to go to that event. Uh, the book was pretty new out. It's been out for a while now. Can you tell me what some of the most interesting reactions have been like? Uh, maybe in your own family, maybe some things that surprised you. I mean, you were taking some chances doing this. Uh, you know, I mean, you're in the academic world. And, and uh, so I imagine that there were some risks involved. How has it turned out for you? Bottom line, end of the sort of the really quick question is um, I was expecting so much stuff and very little came at me. I mean, there's a moment in the end of in the end of the book where I'm talking about this weird waking dream I have. And I'm very interested in classical mythology. And, you know, the the my bunkero files will recognize this story that love that stuff, too, which is Antigone, who gets shut up in a tomb. That's the sort of the bad end of the, when they people rewrite that story but that's basically it she she you know, thwarts her the rules of the kingdom and she's left to die and so this i was kind of shut up in this upright sarcophagus and um i knew that this big stone had just been lowered into place above me like a stone that was like a foot and a half two feet and I knew that there was no way I had the strength to lift that stone. And I was going to be scratching and calling and, you know, my fingernails would go down to the nub. I mean, I was, I mean, it was sort of this weird waking dream where I could imagine no one's going to hear me. No, I'm, sh and I was describing it to a friend and I kept hearing myself say, I'm shut up. I'm shut up. And I just looked at the pun of that and went, oh my God. And that was the moment when I thought, I am publishing this book. I don't care what happens. I, I will not be shut up. I remember at the time I was at Franklin and Marshall and I went to the dean of the college, um, at the dean of, uh, of faculty and said something about, you know, the, co the college may get stuff thrown at it. This is the kind of stuff that uh, can happen sometimes. And, you know, on the one hand, you kind of want it because it means like, you know, you're rattling their cage. And of course, largely one does not. So um, 
I love this Dina faculty. She said, you're a grown up and you know what you're doing and we're a college and we know what we're doing. So I say, bring it on to both you and us. And it was a great blessing to have that from her. Um, my dad had, had died by the time the book came out. My mother was still alive and I was able to carry, she was down living with my sister in Arizona by that time. And there's two moments there. One was um, about a year and a half, two years before I finished the book, she asked me what I was working on for the num 19th time because she was that was happening with her. Right. And I told her a memoir and I said, you know, um, sometimes I just am so sad about those years. I was in Scientology. I caused you and dad so much pain and anguish. And of course, I just sometimes think, what did I do to my life? And she was sort of folding laundry or something. And she said, I don't know. It made you who you are today. And I think you're pretty great. Wow. Wow. That was enormous. And then when I took the boat book down, she'd moved then to my other sister's house uh, to live in. Um, I took the book down to show her and she just clasped it to her bosom and said, I knew you'd do it. I don't think she knew what it was about per se. She couldn't really see very well by then, but she knew I'd done it. And in our literary family, bringing a book out was a big deal. So those two things felt like huge blessings. However, about nine months into after the publication of The Hardback, um, I got this weird letter from a guy on Amazon who said, um, I've been selling your book through my website, through my account on Amazon, and I've received a letter from um, the publishing wing of Scientology saying that there is a copyright infringement with your book. And um, I, I just, you know, my eyes just went like this in the proverbial and I said, what? So I got hold of CounterPoint, my publisher and my editor, Jennifer, and they were great, went after it. But because of this copyright infringement accusation, which if you were on the other side of it, you'd be very happy that someone was reporting that, right? If, if I were, if you were on the foot, on the other foot, I'd be very happy. Someone was saying, you seem to have infringed on something. But this I knew was absolute BS. Because for one thing, I had covered my ass. And I think it had possibly to do with flunk start in the title. Possibly, but that can't, I don't think that's copyright term, but they never explained it. And they, oh, very similar to the Trumpian stuff in a way that's going on a little bit right now with the, the constant obfuscation and delay tactics, but with the court, but they just kept delaying and pushing back and never really delivering anything. But finally, uh, they just let, they lifted that and the book was able, the hardback was able to be for sale again. And fortunately that time, by that time we were already working on bringing out the paperback. So the sales of the hardback had sort of settled down and we were looking to launch the paperback. And so it wasn't as big a problem as it could have been had it happened you know, a week into the publication, that would right. have been a huge bummer because whatever we think about our, our local, you know, whether buying through Amazon or supporting our local bookstores, Amazon is where people buy books. So right. it was, it was a blow, but nothing like the blow it could have been. And then when you did come out with the paperback, tell me what happened with the title. Oh, that's interesting. Well, so this is the cover of the, you can see I'm prepared. <laughs> Here's the cover <laughs> of the of the hardback, right? Blunk start with this. And I I kind of wanted the falling figure because my brother's a huge part of this as well. And he fell off the bridge, but also down the rabbit hole, all these little images. So it's a little cartoony for my taste, really. But I appreciated the, how big the flunk start was, which I loved. But then as we were heading into the paperback, my editor calls me up and she says, Sans, I have the strangest news for you. And it was very strange because she had pushed hard to retain Flunk start in the title. She had loved that because it's the theme of the book. It's like you fall down, you get up, you know. I love that Beckett says, Samuel Beckett says, fail again, fail better, you know. I just loved that, that, that connotation all through the book. She said, the powers that be, the people that, you know, sell the books and do the book stuff in the in the company at CounterPoint 
think that Flunk Start sounds too much like a self-help book, even though it says a memoir, nice and big on the cover. And I was in my office actually at Franklin and Marshall when I got that phone call and I literally had to sit down. It was like, oh my God, oh my God. Because I loved my title. And um, so we went back and forth about a bunch of things. And bottom line, I said, we have to retain Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. A, it's what the book is actually about. And also, there is some name recognition in that case. So we agreed on that. And I have to say, I love the cover of the paperback very much. There's this um, beautiful way that the D and the E and the L and the T are kind of like being grabbed into. It's whatever. very, it's very 3D, very in depth. Very in depth yeah. And quite beautiful. And it does. So I'm very, 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 very happy. Plus, of course, it has your wonderful blurb on the back, which makes me very, very happy. So, um, um, and I was very grateful that they chose the three blurbs they chose from different mag from newspapers and and uh, and whatever that. So that was big, and um, and I was very happy for it. The only real downside there was any of the reviews I'd received on Amazon, because it's a different ISPN would not transfer over to the paperback. So the nice accumulated reviews didn't pass over. So I wrote some of those people and said, would you mind? But it was too much work. And I just thought the book will find its way. It'll find its way to the people that want and need to read it. And to this day, I'll get you know messages or phone calls just saying, thank you, thank you. Above all, and surprisingly to me, Tony, it's been the people who have said, it's allowed me to look at a decade I thought was lost in my life and mm -hmm. have another way of looking at it. And, you know, all the reviews in the world don't count up to something like that when you have actually made a shift in somebody's life in that way. So feel so, so lucky. And also, I just know I changed my way of thinking in this world by writing it. Well, that's my, my next question was, has, has that whole experience then change the way you write change the way you read about things i mean what how did it how did it affect you the thing was that whatever caused me to find my way to what i felt scientology would offer me and give me and do for me or solve for me that was still present in my life because mm. of course scientology had not solved those things had not done that for me i mean there's that and i really didn't progress very far up the bridge actually i was a happy little consumer of the the courses at the bottom they made me very happy i loved that stuff and um and i was you know supposedly a last lifetime clear and once like you know blah 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 um so i kind of scuttled around the bottom of the bridge for quite a long time you know why and um but as i what launched into writing the book and then rewriting the book and rewriting the book, the writers at Underground Bunker understand how often it takes the re, re, rewrite to figure out what you're actually saying. I began to understand that even if the book never got published, and I, of course, I wanted it to be, I was so grateful for having plunged in and plowed this terrain and figured out what it was because. All of those things were still in my psyche and I had to confront them newly and to confront them during by writing about them was so powerful. So, you know, bottom line, it's like it's not going to get solved out there. The only person that can solve it and figure it out and change it is in here. That was the great big lesson, you know, and maybe. That's what Scientology wanted the cognition they wanted us to have, right? The epiphany, perhaps, of OT99 or whatever it is. But for me, that was in writing the book and that it just released a lot. You know, it's like you make your happiness. It's up right. to you. And you form your thoughts. That that ancient phrase, you know, it's like, be careful what you think because those become your 
actions and be careful what your actions are because those become your words or vice versa. And be careful what your actions are because that will become your life. And you realize that does, it starts with that nitty little thought that you, you have to figure out, well, I don't really want to think that because <laughs> let's think this instead. Hmm. And those have been very, very powerful, you no know, ancient wisdom, right? Nothing new to me, but ones that I could finally put to use. Well, you're part of a very sophisticated writer community. I'm curious. I remember at the time I was curious what you were going to hear in that environment. That's probably been one of the biggest surprises, Tony. And I'm really, really happy that you asked that question because the book got taken really seriously. And I'm amongst the blurbs, the two, the two besides yours on the back of the book. I'm so proud. One comes from The Nation, that august ancient magazine that deals with politics of all things. And the other one comes from The Times Literary Supplement, uh, wow. one of uh, England's biggest papers. So I like the fact that although I got the Kirkus and the Starred Review from Library Journal and, you know, these lovely reviews that mean a lot, that those thoughtful, thoughtful uh, perspectives on what my effort was because it is an effort to be, I didn't have a big escape. I mean, I so admire the people that come before me who did their, you know, I wrote mine because of the people who wrote, you know, all those people whose books, I think you have many on the back of your shelf, you know, they, they led the way, they paved the way. And I didn't have to leap barbed wire on a motorcycle. I didn't have to hide in the back of a car. I managed to go off and to a MFA program at the University of Iowa, three, you know, 2000 miles away from LA and just sort of creep away. That was, I was, the timing was good also. I think there was a lot of upheaval in the church, but, um, but I didn't. So I wanted to write a book that asked the big philosophical questions about what is it that we want when we enter a church of any kind. And I appreciate, you know, on your uh in your newsletter and on your website, you talk about why don't you use cult? Why do you use church? And I so appreciate your answer to that. You know, I've been asked that in readings. Why do you keep referring to it as a church? And it's like, well, now I kind of go back and forth between the two, but the fact of the matter is I just I had to figure out what cult meant to me you know, before I could actually label it that and understand, yes, there is psychological manipulation. Yes, there is financial manipulation. And yes, there is a us versus them and the various things that do define cult. Um, but basically the idea that I was inside of a institution that took itself seriously as a religion was pleasing to me. Mm. I, at, for a long time, that was one of the reasons I kept on, you know, that idea that I was inside of something about the spirit, something about the soul. I think that is a big reason so many people still get involved because there is such certainty. And when you are at a certain age looking for certainty, that kind of, or your life's in this uproar, the way mine was after my brother's huge accident, you want this pillar. And that is what Scientology provides, especially at a young age, I think, when people are, you know, it's like, oh my God, you mean... As my dad once said to me, I have to do what I want to do. You know, it's like there's no one out there saying, you know, what you have to do. And it's nice to have someone telling you what you have to do. And that's well, it. It not only sells certainty, but it also, um, I think, people uh, at certain times in their life, especially when they're young, like to think that there's this larger story that they're part of, that this everyday life I see can't be everything and scientology comes along and says no you're you're an incredibly important part of the story of the whole galaxy you can see why that's very uh attractive to certain people now i to me that doesn't work i'm like no but no, that was never you're so right there and that whole idea of i'm a god or whatever was not attractive but what was attractive was that I could explain current things in my current life with past lives. And for some reason that was tremendously satisfying. And I think a lot of us who love historic historical novels, 
you know, it's like, that's part of it. Oh, yeah, I was alive back there in Greece, you know, or, you know, it's like, and because you've read so avidly, or maybe because there's memories of whatever, it's like, you've got this, okay, you know, and, and then if you, you know, that whole auditing thing that takes you to the earlier similar, or the earlier sillier, as sometimes people (laughs) say, um, you know, it's like, well, maybe that's the reason I'm having this problem with my husband now. It's like, that stuff was very satisfying, you know, well, and not again, only not only are you uh, learning, you know, you might have an interest in history and that kind of thing, but also who doesn't like to solve a mystery? And then Scientology tells you, no, you're the mystery. Go solve you. And then it's so centered on you. You never go in and like, OK, you now need to learn the, his- <clears throat> the history of L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, you soak that up at some point. But right. from day one, it's like, no, tell us what your story is. Where'd you come from? How, you know, how far back can you remember? It's all about you. And I think that that, that for, again, for some people, that's really appealing that they, that they, yeah, we're going to solve a mystery and it's yourself. That's mm-hmm. powerful. It's very powerful. And then from what I understand, the idea that you can't actually ever be solved because of the unbelievable numbers of things clinging to you from having been blown up, you know, I think was that I read, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's son or somebody threw up when he first heard that whole concept, you know, <laughs> and um, it's your, that's such an astute statement. It's true. It's just always here, always here. And it's, it's always what I would talk about before. What did I do? But it's also like, who have I been? Right. So there's this really interesting thing of um, studying your belly button nonstop. And it, you know, I mean, there is something I appreciated in in uh, in the tech, which we had to do with the four flows, where it was, what is you done to you? I mean, that was handy. That was useful. And that's something sometimes that's a little thing that'll float by when I'm feeling a little put upon. Well, you know, why don't you like reverse that one and take a look? It's useful if, right. it, and, if and when it is. But bottom line, you're right. It's not like Let's study the history of Scientology in Australia or right. let's study, you know, let's study the history of other religions. Let's have a course on other religions. You know, you can go down that path in your own work if you are so desired. I mean, that's what I loved about word chains. Oh, what does Israel mean? You know, oh, it's the name of this actual angel. Oh, I mean, then you kind of get this whole thing about Israel and Judaism, which I got during that study, but it wasn't anything that was in the course pack. Mm-hmm. It was because I went down a word chain that was, you know, down into ancient Israel, you know, which was just fun. But that is such an astute comment. It's just endlessly here. And that how how bad that is for your psyche, for your soul, for your body, for every part of you. Mm-mm. So, uh, tell can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing lately? Because um, uh, it's been a few years since we talked. Well, in terms of, um, I continue to play music, and um, um, I have a. Some new songs that um, that I'd started at for what do you call an album these days? Because these days you try to hand someone a CD and they run across the room saying, "I've no way to play it," you know. Right. But my new album, I'll just say. So I'm hoping that I'll have that done in um, November. It's taken a while because COVID, and um, I think one of the things I've been working on over years, and then you know, came to a lovely sort of fruition about a year ago is I'm quite um I'm quite taken there's this scandal surrounding a writer named Wallace Stegner oh that's right I was reading your material on that yes fascinating who, who wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning book called Angle of Repose and um very short story about that I was with a theater company in this area Nevada City Grass Valley where I live and someone, we thought, oh, we'll make a play out of Angle of Repose because it takes place locally and we can do a sort of, you know, huge endeavor, get a nice Fulbright or something to do with this. And someone said, you know, there's some local dudgeon aimed in Stegner's direction. You should look into it. So 
I did and discovered that he had copied verbatim just enormous chunks of Angle of Repose from another woman's reminiscences and also from her letters, which, um, you know, my favorite thing about that is the review in the New Statesman that said that his letters, Segner's voice in the letters was um, was the you know height of authenticity, right? So I wrote a play, uh, Fair Use, and then I also recently had a fabulous support from a wonderful magazine called Alta, and they published an enormous piece with just a lot of support behind it, and it got an enormous amount of attention, which was extremely gratifying. And to this day is just last night I was at a reading and someone talked about that. So um, that's just been a big focus of mine. Um, and then, you know, on I go with the next piece of writing and, you know, taking care of my life here in Nevada City, which I have, you know, oh, a lovely time. Yeah. God, I love that part of California. It I really miss beautiful. it. Uh, so and teaching? Well, I retired from Franklin and Marshall oh. quite uh, intriguingly. I decided to retire in what would have been 20. So I was spending that final semester here in, in Nevada City because that's a beautiful arrangement I'd worked out with the college. Boy, was that magic. And um, so I was going back east for the two weeks I'd always spend there during the spring semester. And, um, you know, it was that I think we all experienced that during the pandemic, which was somewhere around March you know, April 28th, I'm going, of course, I'm getting on a plane. And around <laughs> you know, March 3rd, I'm thinking, I wonder if I should get on a plane. And then, you know, March 8th, it's like, no way I'm getting on a plane. It happened so fast. We all yep. remember that. Yeah. And so um, I'd been asked to speak to the graduating seniors in the English department. And I had my retirement dinner, all that stuff went, you know, belly up. But right. I've been back since they just it's a great I just love that college and they it was just the best experience in every way for me. So I continue to teach online courses. Um, that was a great thing. I didn't know about Zoom until um, the the pandemic. And um, I just have such a good time. I limit my classes generally to eight people. So there's nine of us on the screen and teach everything from uh, fictional fiction stra fiction strategies for the memoirs to a weekend on how to build effective scenes to something I call the accountability gathering, which is just gathering and writing together and once a week. And so lots of different people can find that on my website if they're at all interested. But I well, enjoy one, one reason I wanted to ask you about teaching is I was just curious if you've run into any problems with AI at this point. You know, Tony, it's as if I'm choosing to live in another dimension. <laughs> I haven't yet run into anything to do with AI. And that's a really great question because I should probably be alert to it. Yeah, I haven't yet. Yeah, because I mean, I I thought of you because I was, I was talking to a, a good friend of mine who was an editor at a major national publication where they hire book reviewers. And he was telling me that they put out a call for, you know, some job openings and people submitted their sample book reviews. And they actually found that some of the reviews submitted by these prospective book reviewers were written by AI. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine what it takes to submit Thing something is, like I, that? More and more, I can't imagine. I mean, I've heard such stories about it's it's ability <laughs> that it's quite they're trying I mean, to make us obsolete sans what are we gonna I do know, it's terrible except that there can't be two faces on a zoom call the very least i don't least. know Pretty i soon. don't know it's what the actors are striking for that's right soon. exactly exactly because who knows what they can do yeah i know so that's really scary i did have a uh a, fr a writer friend tell me that she was working on a novel that takes place in, you know, Puritan England. And she, this, I literally, the, the hinges of my jaw just went loose when she told me, she said that she knew she wanted to have a, uh, a pastor give a ranting speech. It was, you know, during the time when the kids, the girls all go crazy with the, with the witching stuff. And uh, she didn't want to have to write it. So she had AI write it for her. She gave oh. the AI some things and blah, 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 blah. And she said she tweaked a little and it works really well. And I was just like, oh, 
ah, but you know, I like there. She's like going, um, she's grabbing it and using it for her own purposes, right? She right. has over what she's doing. And as like, and as you know. uh crazy as that sounds to you and me, I have a feeling the next generation will just think, well, that's just a crutch. That's just you a know, crutch. You just have the AI pump out some stuff. It's rough. It's not good. Then you make it yours. And they right. will think and they will think that's no big deal. Uh-huh. And uh, but to me, it's just so shocking. Uh, but I yeah. guess that's the future. I do too. Yep. It's coming our way. There's it's out of that one's out of the box. Yeah. That and you know, David Miscavige could use that to write OT9 and 10 now that I think of it. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Just put, it's actually a marvelous idea just to put that stuff and say online and go, so what is OT9? Tell us. <laughs> you know, some of my readers have been encouraging me to do stuff like that with the oh with AI and I've, res- I've resisted it. I just like, no, I don't want to go near no. the damn thing. No, right. It actually gives me the creeps. It does. Yeah, it does. So, but Tony, I want to thank you so much. I mean, I, I wrote this to you, but when you were doing those briefs from the Masterson trial, oh. I really was at with my computer. I would just go check it to see if another one had come in. And I was very, very grateful. The sartorial splendor alert I always <laughs> loved, of course. But just the way you kept us abreast as if we could be there with you, the amount of work that entailed. And, um, and of course, just your wonderful ability to write and keep us intrigued. But just the way you pump and give us both in a very humorous way and a very serious way. So grateful to you for what you do to to keep us abreast of what's going on. And I'm just so grateful. Thank you. That was that was uh, quite an experience. I was I wasn't the court reporter. I could not get down every word, but I was trying to give people a sense of what it was like. And I heard from people who were there and then read my thing later and said, yep, you caught it. So that was, uh, and also as a reporter, I was looking for things that maybe other people weren't looking for. And, uh, but uh, yeah, what an experience. I just, I, I, and to go to both trials and then to have that verdict, let me tell you that verdict, the whole thing was so surreal. I was um, that, that day, May 31st, we knew something was going on in the morning and the clerk said, uh, we want you to go to lunch. When you come back, we want everybody back. Oh, something's up. And the hallway outside the courtroom would get kind of crowded after lunch anyway. But now it was really packed because everybody wants to get in there. Sans, I was standing like two feet away from Danny and Bijou and their mother, Carol, and their brothers. I'm like right there. And, And they were buoyant. Yeah, they thought they were okay. They thought they were walking in to hear that it was a, a hung jury. And I have to admit, after the first trial experience, I kind of figure we were too. So we roll in there and I'm kind of thinking, oh, this is going to be awful. They're all happy already. And then the judge said, we have two verdicts. And I was like, whoa. Oh my God. Yeah. And they all knew, Bijou knew, they all knew that they had filed three to get two. They needed two to send him to prison. He wouldn't go to prison with one. And when the clerk read the first one guilty, and it was when she said the second one guilty, that's when I heard this otherworldly wail. And I looked around like, what is that? And I realized sitting right in front of me was Bijou. And it was this involuntary, just awful sound that came out of her which then turned into very loud sobbing. And the judge said, listen, I'm sorry, you're going to have to compose yourself. She knew too, right? We knew too. And that second one, he's going to prison. So what a moment, you know, I'm still getting chills. I didn't expect it. I I really thought there was going to be a hung jury. And then uh, he stood up and and a female deputy came over and put handcuffs on him. So I thought that was very, and there, and, and it had been mostly male, deputies the whole time so that was kind of interesting uh i don't know i don't know if they'd planned that or not but all of a sudden it was a woman putting the cop putting the cuffs on him and it's all i've always thought it was interesting that you know not only were these jane does going through hell 
testifying multiple times and being cross-examined three different times, but it was a woman judge. And it was really a woman prosecutor who made the difference in the second trial, I personally believe. So, you know. It's great. It's totally, yeah. I really appreciate that you, uh, that you found that uh, useful and, and it, you know, helped put you there. I just know I'm not the only one who was running around my house pumping my fit. I just loved imagining all across the country, all across the world, you know, people were going, yes, you know, because you had put us there so, so substantially and thoroughly that we just were in the courtroom when that was announced. My yeah. God. Yeah. Amazing. And we still don't know what he's going to get. He's, uh, well, well, I'll probably, no, uh, this will air before he is sentencing. So, um, yeah, he uh, he's looking at 30 to life. So pretty, pretty amazing. Did you, did you, besides the bass player, did you know many celebrities uh, in your time in Scientology? Not a lot. Um, I came to know uh, Karen Black a little bit. Um, a sweet little thing. And the probably biggest person I came to know was not kind of by extension Chick Corea, but mostly his wife, Gail Moran, mm. who... Um, uh, I was, I, yeah, we hang on, we hung out a lot together. And there was a song I wrote called Light a Candle for Freedom that she, uh, which is a cappella, and she and I and another person sang it for a couple of, it's a great story, a couple of Scientology rallies until I literally lost my voice. I just realized I couldn't sing this song for this reason. And then I stopped singing for about a decade. Wow. It's really, and it took me a long time to recover that story. So, yeah, I'll send you a, a link to that. That uh, that uh, it's really short, but it's, it's send it uh, to me, and I'll I'll publish it with this uh, that sounds recording. Great. So, listen, thank you so much. It's so great oh, to catch no, up with you. you. Uh, I hope you get to New York again before too long, and I'd love to see you perform again. That's a real treat. Thank you. I'm sorry that we didn't get to do our wonderful thing we had in mind where I was going to do a reading where you were going to play Milton Katselis. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I forgot right. about that. Yes, from my book, we were going to do a little thing. So oh, maybe another yeah. time we we'll do that because that would be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of dramatize that. Well, what a pleasure, Tony. Thank you very, very much. Thank so you, appreciate Sans. that. All righty. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. I'm reckoning